Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, I'm joined by the authors of Calibrating Public Accountability, which is a March 2021 book published by Cambridge University Press as part of their Elements and Public and Nonprofit Administration series. Daniel Bromberg is an associate professor in political science and public policy at the University of New Hampshire, and Etienne Charbonneau is the Canada Research Chair in Comparative Public Management at the National School of Public Administration in Montreal, Canada. Subtitled The Fragile Relationship Between Police Departments and Civilians in an Age of Video Surveillance, the book examines the implementation of body-worn cameras and the expectations that police and civilians have about the release of footage. During our discussion on March 22, 2021, Dan and ATN discussed their hopes for the book, outlined their research approach, and summarized a few key takeaways for scholars, policymakers, and practitioners. Let's get to the conversation. Dan and ETN, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Sure. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Troy. So before we get into the details of your book, Calibrating Public Accountability, kind of a big picture question for you in terms of who you hope will read the book and what kind of impact you want to come out of it. A few different ways to answer that. It's definitely uh, geared towards, you know, other academics, certainly. You know, I think what we're hoping is that, you know, both academics will use it in their classrooms for a number of of reasons, right, both to explore concepts of accountability, but also methodologically. Uh, We do a couple different experimental surveys in there. Um, We do a nice qualitative design in there as well. So uh, we think that could lend itself to uh, a nice classroom kind of exposure to some of those. And then, you know, the bigger picture, as far as the field goes, we're hoping to move models of accountability a little further away from the idea of frameworks and more towards predictive models. And what we've been trying to do is, you know, go on programs like yours and try to cut some of the book up into smaller bite-sized pieces, might be more applicable to some of the practitioners out there, you know, some of the folks that are just interested in this topic, and try to give them you know, the main points that we think might be soluble, you know, across a bunch of different audiences. So from a policy perspective, obviously, we're hoping that there's some impact on that side as well. So onto the content topic of the book, body-worn cameras by police officers, how prevalent the practice is that across the U.S. right now? And I guess internationally, too, if you have perspective on that. So in the book, we have 2018 data, which was roughly half in the U.S. So this is for policing. This is the, where the core of the, uh, the business for most of these companies are. But there are some examples where, especially in prisons, in jails, where correctional facilities are expanding a little bit. There's either um, an EMS services. So it's, this, these are small exceptions, but like the bulk of it is in, is in policing and roughly half probably would be a fair assessment. Just in the news, it's a timely time to talk about this in terms of the increased use 
Personally, it's timely because I'm co-teaching a course this semester in the Biden School on innovation in the public sector, and they're tasked with their second memo that's due this week, and it's focused on the fictitious implementation of video camera surveillance system in a downtown area to kind of track criminal activities and improve conditions down there. It's fictitious and it's not well thought through. And their their task is to kind of poke holes in what they need to think through relative to implementation. But I think it gets at there's this alluring notion that if you see it on video, you're going to know what went, what went on. You're going to know how to deal with it effectively. And I don't want to steal your thunder at all. But what's kind of the promise of these body worn cameras? Yeah, there's definitely a, a win win, right? I mean that that's. That's how it was sold. You know, just an aside quickly to your point, and then I'll jump back right to that. You know, you could think downtown London, you know, had been using cameras to alleviate traffic congestion in the center of the city for at least a decade, if not more than that now. I want to say probably 15 years. So, So they're not uncommon, right? Surveillance in cities is not an uncommon idea. Um, The question is kind of how are we using that surveillance? Is it for environmental goals or is it, you know, to police the citizens, right, which are two very different things? You know, the the promise with body-worn cameras has always been, right, transparency and accountability, right? That's kind of the the two words that are always thrown out. You know, there, there are loads of problems with just throwing those things out there. I mean, one being that there's really little empirical evidence that shows transparency leads to accountability. But there, that connection, while it just seems so perfect, and of course, transparency leads to accountability, you know, the literature is mixed on it, right, at, at best. So there's that. And then there's the question of, you know, from whose perspective, right, from whose perspective, right? So from a civilian perspective, it's kind of, well, we should see what they're doing, right? We, we're going to watch them and we're going to say whether or not they're doing something right or wrong putting aside whether or not civilians have any idea if police officers are behaving right or wrong based on their skill sets. But from the police perspective, it is, well, we could use these to be more efficient in our jobs, right? We could use them to write up incident reports. We could use them to close out citizen complaints that were filed kind of erroneously. You know, there are any number of ways where the body-worn cameras can make law enforcement's job just more efficient. They don't need to do things for memory. I mean, things like that. So they promise very different things uh, depending on who you're talking to. And so tell me what you tested, I guess. What what were your experimental surveys as you put them, I think? Uh, What did those look like and what were you trying to test? In a nutshell, what we showed police chiefs and uh, residents of the U.S., a thousand and a thousand people from Los Angeles people from Seattle and people from Charlotte. And we picked these three cities because they had really different uh, models of uh, how their police department share with them police footage. So we showed them the same scene. It's a one minute clip uh, that Dan will uh, um, describe to you of a police interventions that end up with police officers having to shoot a citizen. So I'll kind of just flesh out the experiment a little bit further. So for the police chiefs, uh, half of our police chiefs received that clip from a body-worn camera. Half of our police chiefs received that clip from the body-worn camera, but then they also received a smartphone video of the same exact clip. In one scenario, 
where there was only a body-worn camera, the, the chiefs had the ability to either disclose or not disclose that footage because there was no other footage available. However, in the other scenario, the way we framed this to our chiefs was we said, this smartphone footage has already been released, but circulating the media. Now you have an opportunity to either disclose or not disclose that body-worn camera footage. And we set it up in such a way that we were asking them for their policy opinion for a colleague who lived in a neighboring jurisdiction or worked in a neighboring jurisdiction. So they wouldn't necessarily default to their own uh, law enforcement policy. And then for the civilians, we had four groups. One group received that same body-worn camera footage and a very detailed explanation from the police chief in a press conference. The remaining three groups received the exact same detail of the press conference. However, instead of seeing the video, they were given one line that was changed as to why they were unable to see the video. So in one scenario, it was due to mental health situations. In one scenario, it was that the officer failed to activate the video. And in the last scenario, it was that the uh, law enforcement agency was going through an internal investigation and that eventually the video would be released. So we were trying to get a sense of how these different scenarios would play out and then what their policy preference would be uh, for that footage. And in terms of the policy preference, how did the public's preference and the police chief preference, how did they differ across the board? So when you look at them generally, they're fairly similar. However, for these four samples of, of residents and citizens that we surveyed, if you look at white people in one group, usually like they're, they're, the, their preferences are pretty close to the police chiefs, with one exception, but they're pretty close. The, the biggest gap is that police chiefs overall tend to not want to share the footage right away as of minorities in the U.S. at large, and these three cities, the proportion of them that want to see that raw footage right away is higher and higher than the white people from the same samples. So there's not one model that everyone wants. But if you're a white person in one of these samples, usually there's more of them that are okay waiting for the result of the internal investigation. And many times the internal investigation takes two, three, four months to come in. Yeah, I mean, to, um, to be clear, a plurality of every group was willing to wait for an internal investigation to take place um, as their preference. Their, their preference, policy preference options were either A, it's never released, B, it's released after an internal investigation, three, a narrated version is released, or where am I at D maybe? Um, I think I'm using numbers and, and letters there. And the fourth scenario was uh, that it's released immediately. The raw footage is just re released immediately. Those were the options that the civilians had. And a plurality of every group, so that's people of color or white people and police chiefs, were all looking at releasing that footage after an internal investigation had taken place. Now, for people of color, that plurality did drop, you know, a little bit, but it still was, you know, more than any other group. 
the main difference, as Etienne articulated, was police chiefs, only 12% of our police chiefs were willing to release raw footage immediately of this particular incident that we captured. Who knows if it was a different incident, maybe if it wasn't a fatal, you know, discharge of a weapon, uh, maybe that would look different. But in this particular scenario, our police chiefs wanted to have an internal investigation first. 12% were willing to release the raw footage. And if you were a person of color, you're uh, about, I would say, I think it was 26 or 27% responded that they would like to see the footage immediately. And, you know, that percentage dropped by maybe three or four points if you were a a white person, but there was still, you know, 23, 24%, somewhere around there. So there was some variation there. That big distinction, though, was really that 12% of police chiefs um, really dropped off, you know, considerably compared to the civilian population. And the related part of your research really focuses on trust, as I understand it. Can you tell me how that ties into this story of of kind of willingness for police chiefs to release footage? So when the two versions we gave police chiefs, it didn't really matter if there was a version going out there on social media. But in both cases, what we what we did also a questions we asked police chiefs, we asked them, how much do you trust your local media? Different questions to measure that. How much do you trust the, you, the citizens you serve? A few questions measuring that. And a citizen point of view, we also ask them, how much do you trust police officers, your department? So then we were able also to look once we have their preferences and how transparent they, they, uh, they, they think um, police chiefs are doing, how trust on each side plays a role. And it did play a role. What we basically saw was um, if the if the police chief had the ability to either release or not release the footage, um, so they were the decision maker, trust really mediated that decision. The likelihood that they would release the raw footage uh, versus waiting to release that footage would increase by upwards of 40 percent or more if their levels of trust were were high. Interestingly, it actually decreased their likelihood of releasing that raw footage decreased if they had trust in the media. And, you know, what we we learned from some of the open ended questions was they weren't feeling as if um, there was an immediacy because the media was going to attack them. Um, So so, you know, we so trust was a factor. I mean, it it certainly played into a chief's decision. And what was really interesting, first of all, for Police chiefs, usually they trusted their citizens. Some of them, the, you know, trust fluctuated, but for, for the most part, they did. Uh, when it comes to citizens and residents of these four, like Americans at large and the, in these three cities, what was striking, and I entered, you know, I was responsible of that small part of the research, like we, we split it up. As I was entering numbers, you would go, white people from Charlotte, white people from LA, Seattle, US at large, at a few decimal points, the same scores across the board. And the same thing when you look at people of color throughout these, all these places, the, the scores were a bit lower, but again, they were almost identical across the board. And so were the, uh, the preferences. So there was really, there's, there were some differences between white people, people of color, but there was a really large consensus there throughout the U.S., and that really clashed with how many ways local police forces 
chose to manage all the decision points when it comes to body worn cameras. You're saying on the policy front that there's very different policies between not just these agencies, but across the board in terms of when footage is released, but there's similar preferences across the board. So there's a mismatch between those policies and the preferences. That's exactly right. You know, for us, that's one of the key takeaways when we're thinking about this. You know, there was recently the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act just passed the the House. So it was early March of, of this year. And it creates a funding mechanism for local police departments, but mandates that federal police officers wear body worn cameras. And there's quite a distinction between what they mandate for those federal police officers who are wearing the body worn cameras versus what they request for local police departments to do. Federal police, the disclosure uh, is really pretty open to the public. You know, you have to get permission from anyone who's captured on the footage. So they would have to say, yes, we're open to this being disclosed publicly. But if that's the case, you would go through a traditional Freedom of Information Act request um, and and they would release it. Um, At least that is the spirit of the law. And, you know, obviously that doesn't always get implemented that way. Whereas at the local level, it's pretty much silent. It is dependent on all state level Freedom of Information requests. And there have been some court rulings that are are saying body-worn camera footage needs to be uh, used or utilized like any other public document. So it has to be, you know, part of a freedom of information request. However, there's a push to make it part of a personnel file, which would really change that, right? And if it's in someone's personnel file, it would no longer be subject to the same type of disclosure. So yes, we are seeing a localization of the policies. However, there's a nationalization of the preferences. So you point to like potential approaches then to have national policy that sets some standards. Are there other things at the state and local level that you think, not a model policy per se, but you need to consider these factors as you're implementing body-worn cameras? What does that piece of the pie look like? So for me, probably the most important thing that states and and localities could do um, is to use this footage for training opportunities. You know, we're collecting this data now. Uh, I don't see this going away, right? It seems as if, you know, that, that, that train has left the station. So I'm not necessarily set on a disclosure policy, right? I'm not there yet, and I don't know that we necessarily should be. I think that this is a longer conversation as to the purpose of, of body-worn cameras. And I don't always think civilians should have full access to everything, but I think, I think it's more complicated than that. However, There are so many different examples of where people would love to have the data of how they behaved. I mean, sports are the easiest example of looking at, you know, film and footage, you know, teams that do well, study film, study footage, you know, but there there are so many other examples of if we only had data of how well we were doing. Well, now law enforcement has data and they could they could use that data for training purposes and ideally in a really effective way. So. As states are moving forward with this and law enforcement agencies are moving forward with this, that's where I would encourage the policy preferences to to move, you know, or or the the sample policy to move um, is towards requiring training and use of footage uh, for the purpose of improving law enforcement. And ETN? 
What are your thoughts on policies? I have thoughts on policies. I don't know that I have a clear preference. Uh, on one hand, like I, and you can hear it, I, I live in part of Canada that doesn't really like when the federal governments tell them what to do, even if there's a consensus. So I'm very sensitive to states in, in the US also that say, we're used to having our way, our preferences, and this is how we want it. Like we don't want to have the federal government, which really means one party is going to be in power at the moment in time and their preferences will be blanketed over everyone then. So I'm, I'm sensitive to that part. However, it's hard for me to believe that if you have 50 states and different localities, that all these different ways to manage accountability are all equally valid and give you the same level of accountability transparency. It's hard for me. So it, it's really a question of federalism and what you're willing to live with. But an argument has been made before in the US by policing scholars is that police departments have, compared to other municipal agencies, a lot of leeways and independence. And it's not clear that there's as much oversight and civilian, in that case, oversight than other departments. So a case been done before from this uh, professor at NYU, Friedman, that police department don't have the same levels of accountability because of the professional nature of what they're doing, where sometimes elected officials, they kind of defer to them a lot more than maybe the urban planning department or the HR department or other ones. It's not that they're out of control and it's like, it's not a hotbed of feudalism deciding everything, but they do have a lot of leeway. And in our case, it's not clear that even in LA, the way, and we see value in just having a scene and explaining this is why the office is doing such and such right now. We see that, Dan and I, I think we see the value in this, but that was not even the most popular policy preference in LA where they're doing it. So just because you have a policy at the given time in your locality or state doesn't mean it reflects preferences. So I don't know where I land yet. I should, but I, I don't yet. And I'm not sure we know what's the best model. What's next for you both? Do you have a follow-up project? So, you know, there's, uh, there's also organizational trust embedded in here, which we, we didn't really look at uh, too much. So there's, there's uh, probably something that's going to be coming out on that soon. There's also that black box, right? So what happens when that police officer responds to a, a civilian complaint. It seems as if body-worn cameras are really active in that relationship and that civilian law enforcement interaction is, you know, of good, a great interest to us. So digging into what that looks like is something we might pursue. Um, and Etienne, I'm sure, will share the potential of moving this surveillance idea on body-worn cameras beyond law enforcement. So I'll let him jump in on that. Yeah, so this is what I've been pushing then hard because I think sometimes we, when body-worn cameras, we uh, forget for a moment that police officers are public servants. This is where it's at at the moment. There's no reason why it would stay there once the technology is there, especially related to trust. Police officer, although it may be, there may be gaps between different segments of population, overall, they're pretty well-trusted still. But pub, like public serve, like public servant, especially federal public servant, there are parts of the country and the countries could be Canada or the U.S. 
where they're not trusted as much. As the technology work surveillance generally, not just cameras that follow you physically pinned on your chest, but cameras on the computer that uh, film monitor what you're doing, I see that as going forward. And I think this is something that the students in our classroom and public servants listening to this podcast uh, are already dealing with at work and will have to deal with more and more. So before taking harsh decision with police officers, we have to think that might come for us eventually. Dan and I were full-time university professors. We've been teaching online. I take for granted that one student could be recording the whole you know, interactions we, we have with them. They easily could. And there's been scandals recently where it happened. And if it happened and it's, if for some reason I said something that could, in that case, not physically hurt, but like hurt mentally someone, would I want my employer sharing the footage right away? Would I want to wait until an internal investigation before sharing? These are all questions that will come for us. So police officers, maybe it's like if you don't have one in your family or if you didn't grow up knowing them, uh, little leagues or anything like that, maybe it sounds like foreign to you, but they're public servants that are being closely monitored now. And I, I see this as going, technology making it easier, and it's already there uh, in other fields outside of policing. Yeah, that's a really good closing perspective as we, as I stare at the Zoom camera here, uh, <laughs> talking with you both. And I really appreciate you both taking time today and uh, unpacking the book a little bit. I hope people will check it out. And I wish you good luck as it rolls out. Thank you both. Excellent. Thank you, Trey. Much appreciated. Thank you for having us. For more information on calibrating public accountability, search for it on the Cambridge University Press website, cambridge.org. For more on IPA, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for listening to First State Insights. Reach out with comments and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon. 